Newtown is a special African-American community. With special people. Most of the early arrivals came to Sarasota looking to better their lives. An indomitable spirit emerged out of their struggle, and a strong faith ushered them through many challenges. The Newtown Alive Project recorded oral history interviews to preserve community history and pride. I'm Vicki Oldham. Today we're talking with activists since third grade, Miss Sheila Sanders. How are you today, Miss Sanders? Good afternoon. I am just fine. I'm blessed and highly favored, and I'm grateful. So can you tell me what are some of your earliest memories of Walter Gilbert? Walter and I were members of the same congregation, mm-hmm. New Bethel Missionary Baptist Church. His mother and one of my aunts were the same age, but his mother and my mother knew each other. And his mother was one of the pioneers at the beginning of our church. Oh, wow. And actually, Walt's mom said, her mom, mm-hmm. okay, Miss Essie Barron, okay, went to New Bethel with her in the belly. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that's how far we go back. And my grandmother, my grandparents actually joined New Bethel in 27 when they came to Sarasota. To Sarasota. Wow. So, you so can- that's how long. When you grew up in the same church in Sarasota, was then a small town. That's how long I have known Walter Gilbert. So since before, forever, forever, your families go back. You're linked beyond just knowing each other, but your families as well. Were exactly, linked. generationally. As a young boy, his mom took him to the NAACP meetings. Is that something your parents did for you as well? At 12, I was president of the youth branch <laughs> of the NAACP. Yes, ma'am. And somebody said, well, how did you become president at 12? And I said, well, the person, I don't know if anybody's ever mentioned her name, Remar Harvin, to you. Remar had been president of the youth branch. And when he went off to college, I became president. At yes. 12. So you were already active in the community because you started off as a child, an elementary school activist, rallying your classmates to boycott the bank at the time that wouldn't give you a tour of their facilities. Well, we didn't call it a boycott. It was just to let them know we didn't appreciate the fact they would not give us a tour of their facilities. I was aware that the bank had given some friends of mine who just happened to be Caucasian a tour of their bank. So we asked for a tour and we were told they didn't do that. I wasn't just suspect. I knew that to be untrue. My mother was a domestic worker at that time. And one of the people she worked for was a local banker. Yes, which ma'am. means I knew his baseboards and windowsills very well because that was my job when I went with her to clean those things on a weekly basis. And I asked him if his bank did tours and he didn't know, but he said he'd find out. So we found out that his bank would give us a tour, the whole class, mm-hmm. a tour of their facility. And we went. He was named Mr. Dellinger Mr. at Palmer Dillinger. Bank. Wow. Yes. 
And as long as it was a Palmer Bank, I opened an account and kept it there. But because Mr. Dillinger allowed us a tour of his bank and we got to see the vault, we didn't just walk through the offices. We got to see the vault opened even. The only vault I've ever seen opened in my entire life, as a matter of fact, happened in third grade. But I always felt that if something was available and it was being denied to me, that was a sign of unfairness. I have always fought unfairness to the hilt. So was that a part of the generation that you came up under? His parents, his mother made sure he was at the NAACP. They were church members. Is Was activism and speaking out something encouraged during that time? with you all? I don't know if it was called activism. I was called mouthy (laughs) (laughs) and opinionated Mm -hmm. and stubborn and stubborn. And some of those traits people still apply to me today. People who have known me for decades say, you really haven't changed. You're the same old Sheila. You've learned to speak out for what was right, which is something that Mr. Gilbert has done. You became the default chair of his campaign when he was running. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I basically became the default because I had worked a lot of campaigns. I'm a little bit older, not light years, a little bit older than Walt. And I had been working campaigns since before I was old enough to vote. And at that time, you couldn't vote until you were 21. By the time Walt came along, they changed it to 18. Need I say more? He said, I need some help. And I told him, I am there for you. So I cannot tell you how many campaign meetings we had in my home regarding his campaign and strategy regarding what needed to be said. Because sometimes your very presence at a city commission meeting makes a world of difference. And I sat in at school board, city commission, and county commission meetings. There were those who said I had no life. But you had a life of service. Is that something that you both were taught? I don't know if so much we were taught. It's an example that we picked up on. His parents and my parents were not uninterested in what we were interested in. You know, if it affects my child, it affects me. That Mm -hmm. attitude, the mother hen. Yes. Okay. The rooster who's going to (laughs) crow loud enough to be heard if you're bothering anything in his hen house. In his hen, yes. Okay. And that was Walt's dad. And my dad was the same way. And unfortunately, many of the people who were the biggest influences in my life have already left us. And I think often... Who is replacing those people? We had all kinds of models Mm -hmm. that we didn't consider models, yet we pattern ourselves after them. Who's doing that now? Those children who are 10, 12, those children who are five or six, who are they going to pattern themselves after now? And mind you, there were those who said that it's not my business then. And there are those who say it's not my business now, but God created all of us and all souls belong to him. So as you do it unto the least of these, it is written, you do it also unto me. And that's where I'm coming from in my attitude toward life every day. And that brings up one of the things that Walter talked about was witnessing the NAACP president, Mr. Humphrey at the Mm -hmm. time. He was a small man of statue. But when he would get in those NAACP meetings, he was a loud and 
boisterous voice. Like he commanded the attention a lot of times. Can you tell me about that experience? Mr. Neal wasn't necessarily loud, but commanding he was. And nobody else talked when Mr. Neal was talking. Nobody else talked. Everybody listened. He organized the first NAACP in Sarasota County, and he became the president. And he was independent enough. He owned what we call the Mm drugstore, which had a soda fountain. Mm -hmm. And he was very involved not just as a shopkeeper, but as a member of the community. And he had three children, two boys and a girl. And they were in my age group, a little bit older. So he was interested in what was and was not happening for children. Mr. Neal would talk to you, not at you. He would talk to you. And he always spoke from a standpoint of knowing, not just inquiring, but knowing what the subject was. And he always, always had a solution in mind when he started talking. So it was just a matter of you pay attention. Mr. Neal will guide you through on this. I miss him and people of his caliber who didn't necessarily step out to be leaders, but were. Because if Mr. Neal said it could happen, you just automatically believe, okay, this will happen. Mr. Humphrey was also one of the organizers of the beach protests during the 50s going into 60s. This protest that lasted about 10 years. What was your activity and Walter's uh, activity during that time? I was still a child, as in <laughs> at that particular time. I had a few people that I could ride with and go to different activities. And somebody we had mentioned once before as an adult was a mentor. But when I became an adult, became like a comrade in the effort. Mm -hmm. And that was John Rivers. And another person who was very involved in the NAACP and social issues was Mrs. Mays, Maxine Mays. So I used to spend so much time in the company of those two that people actually thought I was their daughter. Oh, wow. And Odessa Crenshaw Butler Mm -hmm. is Mrs. May's daughter. And people would ask her about her daughter sometime and she would tell them about Odessa. They said, what about your dark skinned daughter? (laughs) (laughs) They said, oh, you mean Sheila. But I spent that much time in her company and my mother allowed me to go with Mr. Rivers and Miss Maxine, wherever they were going. And they would go all the way to Alabama to a protest. I could just tag right along. We had a lot of learning at that time, but the protests were much more organized than you would have believed from watching TV because they would take us into an area and tell us things like they will give you three warnings before they bring the dogs out or get the water hose going, so forth and so on. So my thinking was, in case I missed the first two warnings, when I heard a warning, I'm going to act. And even though I was there supervised by adults, I remember one time we had gone someplace on the bus and I'm walking back toward the bus alone. It never entered my mind that that was more dangerous than staying there in the crowd. But That's what I did. And I can remember hearing my parents say, you know, God gave you common sense. Use it.
Bringing up our parents, Walter was born through a midwife. Were you born through a midwife as well? And why were they so important in our community during that time? Sarasota Memorial Hospital was a segregated hospital at that time, which means they were not encouraging women of color. We were colored then. This is before we became black. Okay. Okay. You know, we went from Negroes to colored to black. (laughs) (laughs) They were not encouraging women of color. I was born at Sarasota Memorial, the first in our family to be born for the great sum of $25 in hospital cost. Oh, wow. But that was at the insistence of my dad. My older brother was born by midwife. She retired in December, the midwife that delivered him. Mm -hmm. I was born in January. (laughs) (laughs) So it took for your father to speak up. To to insist insist. that rather than a different midwife, Mm -hmm. I would be born at the hospital. And $25 was a lot of money when I was born. It won't buy lunch now, but it was a lot of money. When I was born. Gilbert was in the early Booker High School class that were forced to leave the school for Sarasota High School. It didn't sit well. Why was that, do you think? Just imagine somebody telling you at the end of the school year that this is the last time you'll be in this school when this school is all you know. We are moving you to another school. Now, it's not that the laws regarding desegregation had just happened. Those laws happened years before. But as usual, Sarasota County was hesitant to act just because there was a federal law (laughs) saying you have to desegregate. And they figured six ways from Sunday how to do it. And irony of ironies, in the 63... 64 school year, again in 64, 65 school year, Booker High School caught fire. The science lab Mm -hmm. and the uh, library were the only two rooms that were destroyed. Now, in that particular building, they were on different sides of a hallway. Irony of ironies, you cannot have a high school without a library and a science lab. That was the law at that time. And so those were burned. They were burned. And to this day, nobody's ever done time for that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But that was the beginning of everything. And we knew, we as in the collective, we, the community, was aware that something was going to happen. We had no idea. Somebody just happened to see the smoke and called the fire department in the middle of the night. Now, this fire happened after midnight, when nobody was around. So they weren't trying to hurt anybody, just trying to ruin the school. And to be sure that Black children were the only ones who were going to have to shift or move to a different location, take out the science lab and take out the library. Then it cannot be an accredited school. Then you don't need to explain why you are uprooting the students. Exactly. And lots of people didn't see it coming, Mm -hmm. but it came anyway. And lots of people didn't believe it when it happened. And unfortunately, we had many who believed that the education being received at Riverview High School and Sarasota High School were better high schools than what we had at Booker. But I sit as a living witness that when we asked for a 
chem study class and a biology class that was not offered at Booker. To come to Booker, they said our students wouldn't be able to pass it. And when I passed a chemistry exam with the highest score in the county, I had people come from downtown school board to interview me to see if I really knew the material. And without parental consent, without parental consent, I was given a test to check my IQ and the numbers leaked out. Wow. Because there was somebody of color at the school board. So the numbers leaked out Mm -hmm. and they thought she can't be that smart. But as I said earlier, some people thought I had no life. So when I wasn't in meetings, I was in the library. So Booker High was a place where your talents were encouraged. Exactly. Everybody at Booker High at that time lived somewhere in the neighborhood. So some people drove all the way from St. Petersburg to teach at Booker High. That's not an inferior school. Some people drove from throughout Manatee County to teach at Booker High. Again, not an inferior school. They drove past their own schools to get to Booker. Booker has stellar students, stellar teachers, and it was a stellar environment for growth, your potential growth. I mean, Booker was very good soil. Yeah. Very good soil. And I am grateful to have been planted in the soil at Booker. Walter was a leader at Sarasota High School, along with Fred Atkins. Why was this leadership so necessary during that time? Because some people were unaware. See, Walt and Fred were part of the NAACP. I used to get them to meetings all the time. They used to complain, oh, I forgot. So I used to call them ahead of time to remind them of the meeting time and location. So they would definitely be there. Mm -hmm. So I continued to encourage even after I was out of high school because they came along not far, but a little bit behind me. So they didn't feel uncomfortable stepping into leadership roles because they had done that before. They had practiced leadership. If something is brand new, if you don't know somebody, you don't understand somebody, somebody is going to serve Chateaubriand to a vegan (laughs) and think you don't appreciate my Chateaubriand. Well, if you knew they were a vegan, you would not have served Chateaubriand. You see my point? Yes, ma'am. But they're thinking you're ungrateful for what they're offering. No, that is not what you are willing to partake of. And Walt and Fred realized that they were not willing to partake of certain things. What you're offering me is not something I want. So they were okay with going in a different direction. And that leadership was needed during that time. Because after they graduated, they went on to do the school boycott and had students, the African-American students, sit out of school for the beginning part of the year, had freedom schools. Well, the freedom schools were mostly about, again, teaching a lesson Mm -hmm. because Sarasota County's budget for students was based on attendance. Correct. So if you're not in attendance, the county doesn't get any money. So if you don't attend for several days, the county fills it in the pocketbook. And the pocketbook will get your attention faster than any verbiage at any time. So that's what the boycotts were about. That, the secondhand books, Mm -hmm. the fact that the 
lunches. We, we had a problem with the lunchroom. We wanted different offerings in the cafeteria. So the solution was, well, if you won't eat what's offered in the cafeteria, because we had had, and now bear in mind that lunch cost 35 cents, okay, at that time. Yes, and, and milk was five cents. The little half pint of milk was five cents. But again, we're talking money. Because people, adults, were working for a dollar an hour. When you start talking about hitting somebody in the pocketbook, they start paying attention because suddenly when they have to turn in these numbers that are much lower on attendance, there's a why. And Sarasota County was unprepared to explain the why. They couldn't explain it away. They had explained many things away, but they couldn't explain that particular why away. So they had to address it. And it was just a way of getting their Attention and the freedom schools were so that children wouldn't be roaming all day. (laughs) (laughs) An unsupervised child is a dangerous thing. It is, but due to that, the freedom schools coming about in the activism of Fred Atkins and Walter Gilbert, Booker High was reopened. Ten years later. Ten years But meanwhile, it was used for storage. Mm. And meanwhile, all those trophies that all the athletes and academians at Booker had earned that were in a trophy case right across from the principal's office, right next to what was then Miss Janie Poe's classroom, Mm -hmm. (laughs) okay, were discarded. Discarded. I mean, not there was no announcement that these trophies are going to be available or anything. It's just somebody saw them in the garbage, called somebody, and the somebody they happened to call was Coach Baker, Al Baker. Coach Baker went out and picked up many of them. And to this day, many of them are still in his garage, <laughs> and which he has set up yes. as a trophy room. As a trophy room. As a trophy room. But, you know, that's the ultimate in disrespect. You tell somebody they can't, and when they do, and at that time, Booker had just won the championship. We were among the best in the nation in basketball. We had people that left Booker and went on to get PhDs, okay? Not just in the 60s. I can think of people who were far ahead of me who had PhDs, and I'm not talking about in one of the social sciences. I'm talking about in math and chemistry. And there were there were students at Booker who graduated and five years later had a master's degree, not a bachelor's, a master's degree in less than five years. And I can name more of them than I have fingers on one hand. So Booker was never to the people who were aware of Booker's capabilities, what people who were unaware thought the capabilities were. We knew who we were. We knew what we had. And we were not going to be told by somebody that had no clue who we were. So as Maya Angela would say, you don't have the vocabulary to define me. <laughs> so there were a number of us who had that attitude. You can't define me. It definitely was the pride of the community. Exactly. Everyone put in just by notifying about the fire about calling the coach to come and get those trophies so that our history, even though other people might have thought it was meaningless, our community knew the value of it. How did Walter become the president of the NAACP? 
he became president of the adult branch yes, years later. This was after marriage, parenthood, all of those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Full-time employment. And he realized that he'd had a good experience when he was with the youth branch. Yeah. And he had sort of moved away from being involved. And he was drawn back into it when he saw a need to bring it back in. There were there was some discontent. We had a longtime president that some people wanted to switch out. Mm-hmm. And that longtime president, a dear, dear friend of mine, John Rivers. But we had some malcontents mm-hmm. who no longer wanted John because they couldn't tell him what to do. Okay. And he didn't do what they wanted him to do. So he they brought in Walt to work against him initially. And then Walt realized what an asset Rivers was and worked with him. And that same group of people a little bit later decided to work against Walt because he wasn't obedient enough. The verbiage that we live with every day is if you know who you are, be you and be you for you. And Walt was at that time ready to do that. So when he became president of the NAACP, he learned the rules for the branch mm-hmm. and our state conference of branches. And he participated at not just the local level, but also at the state level. Once you know the rules of the game, you can play the game. And he was willing to learn the rules of the game. But he inherited that position from somebody who had suffered long with the NAACP, supported the NAACP out of his own pocket when we didn't have the treasury to do so. We couldn't afford to send Rivers to a conference or to a convention. He went anyway. Walt didn't realize Rivers was making all these sacrifices. But when Walt took over, he realized, these people calling me all times of day and night. (laughs) Okay, because I'm wearing a title president. That doesn't mean I shouldn't have any peace. That doesn't mean you can disturb me anytime you want. And that was one of the things that he realized. Walt did a good job because he was a good student. And I'm sure it's an experience that he'll tell you he found to be very rich. Under his leadership came the federal lawsuit against the city. Can you tell me more about that? I'm the S.E. Sanders on that lawsuit. (laughs) One of the things that angered me most is unfairness. To this day, I I have a problem with unfairness. We had five commission districts in the city of Sarasota. Everything was at large. There were three people. And when I say three people, they were friends of mine. I had been in their home and two of them had been in my home. That kind of friendship who were running for office, who traveled together to all the meet the candidate meetings They were just that sure they were going to be elected. They were neighbors. They didn't live in our community. Did they live in the new town? No, they all lived in Bird Key within two blocks of each other. I didn't have a problem with them living on Bird Key. I had a problem with Bird Key being the majority representation for the entire city. I thought that was grossly unfair. There are people today who represent areas and they cannot name five streets in the area that they represent. The laws are written so that to represent a particular district in Congress, you don't have to live there. 
how can you make decisions for people if you don't know the community and what the community actually needs? It's not even about what is good for the people. It's about egos and agendas. There are people with an agenda who will tell you what they will do. There is no history of what they have done. And if you're not suspicious of that, then there's a bridge I can sell you. (laughs) (laughs) And recently, that same at-large bill was put to the vote again for the people to decide if, hey, let's do it at large. Let's have one major area for the city and the county of Sarasota. And the voters again denied it. How do we keep that in the forefront of this next generation coming up? Pay attention if it is happening to you or is it happening for you? Who is the beneficiary of what is going on? If it's of no benefit to you, why are you paying for it? Somebody said, well, I pay more than you do. Well, the formula is the same. You pay a percentage. (laughs) I pay a percentage. If you're paying more, it's because you have more. Earlier this week, there was a home in Harbor Acres that sold for more millions than I have fingers. Harbor Acres. I can remember in the 60s when I could not get a bank Mm-hmm. to even consider me purchasing property in Harbor Acres. Why do you want to live there? Why don't you want to be around people you already know? As though I could learn to meet new people, but I was turned down. And as a matter of fact, the neighborhood I live in now, in the 60s, I could not have lived there. There are people, it wasn't a matter of income, two income professionals, teachers who could not buy a home outside of Newtown couldn't get financing. So it's a concerted effort to keep somebody marginalized. And there's a saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's how it was working against you for no reason other than pigmentation. Can you tell me about your meeting when you all signed that lawsuit? How was that night? How did you feel? What was the energy of it? I was very concerned that it would drag on. (laughs) That was my concern. Is this going to happen or is this going to drag on? We had a lot of hope, but as usual, it takes more than just hope. And we were able to find an attorney who literally worked for us, not even for pennies on the dollar. Okay. My oldest child was in school at Outdoor Academy elementary school. I had people call the school to have his scholarship pulled, then have what we would call a fit when they found out he was not on scholarship. So then I had people calling my family members, asking them how I could afford to have him at that school without a scholarship. That's how invasive that process was on my life. I had At that time, I was employed by General Telephone. General Telephone would call me in and ask me different questions. Were you involved in this? Were you involved in that? I was not representing GTE. I either did what I did on my lunch break or after hours. If you're not paying me, you don't own me. I am an individual. So my time is just that, my time. And just as 
I'm not representing GTE. GTE is not representing me because in 66, actually in 65, GTE told me that their customers were not ready for colored operators. 1965, their customers were not ready for colored operators. And I told them they won't see us. And the person they had working in human resources said to me, you don't have much of a brogue. Maybe they won't know your color. Now, I don't know whether that was supposed to be an insult or a compliment, but I did not take it as a compliment. There seems to be a, a trend of leadership in our community. It is a life of being continuously busy, as Mr. Walter is busy today as ever. Why is that? Why do you think that is that is the case? Life is movement. <laughs> what is stayed is dead. So we have no intention of being stayed, S-T-A-I-D. We are living. And I say often to some of my associates and all of my friends, at some point, I may wear out. I will never, ever rust out. I guess once a leader, always a leader, right? In one way or another, uh, I still teach Sunday school in my home church, and I was reminded as recently as Easter Sunday when I saw some of the students I taught over 40 years ago, fine young women, fine young men who remembered me with a hug and a smile and remembered my class. And I can look at them and I can see generations of their families that I remember from my childhood. And most of the people that I looked up to when I was a girl girl, as in elementary school and high school, were much younger than I am now. Much younger, not a few years younger. And we used to have a different level of respect. See, I grew up in the area where you talk to people over the age of 12 differently than you do people under the age of 12. And now we have a level of disrespect I have never witnessed before. And I'm one of those, what they call people who say, yes, it is my business. If I hear a child disrespecting their parents or their guardian or whomever they're with, you're not old enough to drive. How did you get here? Mm -hmm. Somebody brought you here. How do you think you're getting home? If somebody doesn't take you back and this is how you're talking to your source, yeah. <laughs> did you think this through? <laughs> Did you? And I, I will talk to children that way. And I very often will say, if I see a child having a tantrum, whether it's a grocery store or in the shopping mall, I'll say, do you mind if I talk to them like a fairy godmother for just a moment? And most times the parents would say, have at it because they're already exasperated. And I talk to the child in a soft voice, but I look directly at the child. And I say to the child, I realize you think it's important that you have a tantrum. Is this where you want to have it? And is now when you want to have it? You're around a lot of people that don't know you and it doesn't matter to them whether you're having a tantrum or not. Who is it you're so upset with you feel entitled for this tantrum? And if you could only have one today, would this be the only one you had or could the day get much worse, and you need a tantrum later. So why don't you save your tantrum in case your day doesn't get any better? And most times the children will say, okay, I'll save it. Just like that. And parents say, how did you do that? 
I gave them an option. Children want to feel they're in control. They want to feel they're in control. Preserve your vocal cords. Speak in a tone loud enough to be heard. Speak clearly, well enough to be understood. And other than that, use your indoor voice when you are indoors. What do you think Walter Gilbert's legacy will be? Fatherhood. Walt has coached a lot of children over the years in sports and in other activities. He's an encourager. I I recognize that trait. I'm an encourager. (laughs) Okay. And I think that parenting, not only those that he sired, but parenting, because he is sort of like Uncle Walt, if you will. He's a community uncle. I've witnessed it firsthand. All right. And I think that's going to be his legacy as a community uncle. He's everybody's uncle, Walt. Thank you. Tell him I said that. (laughs) Thank you so much. You're um, welcome. For speaking with us and sharing this amazing wisdom. Thank you. You're very kind. Thank you. I consider myself privileged that you even called me. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from the Division of Historical Resources at the Florida Department of State. Visit NewtownAlive.org for more information on this episode and other projects.